Today's first scripture reading comes from Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26, and can be found on page 983 to 984 of the Pew Bibles. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is the word of the Lord. Today's second scripture reading comes from Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11, and can be found on page 1180 of the Pew Bibles. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard of the law, a Pharisee, as for seal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider Loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, everyone. We will continue today with our fourth fourth piece of our series on Philippians. And we'll start off again with a quick review of everything we've been going over in the past few weeks. So just some context, Paul again is in prison, writing to the church in Philippi. At the beginning of the letter, we see the transformed worldview that Paul has, that he sees success is living for Christ alone. We learned about living as citizens of heaven and about the loving community that the church should be. Last week, we talked about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and that God gives us the desire and the strength we need to live for him. We talked about how our God is at the same time perfectly loving, gracious, and just, and how the more we know about God, the more beautiful that we understand and that we realize that he is. This week, we're going to continue from the beginning of chapter 3, For the sake of time, we had to skim over uh, a chunk of chapter 2, but I'll give a quick overview of the end of chapter 2. After talking some more about what living for God looks like practically, Paul then goes on to talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus. He says he hopes to send Timothy to the Philippian church soon, and he hopes that he himself will also be able to come and visit soon. He also tells them that he is sending Epaphroditus back to them, who takes this letter with him to the Philippian church. Epaphroditus was sent by the Philippian church to come and help take care of Paul's needs while he was in prison. And so this is what brings us up to chapter 3. Let's pray together as we start. Lord, please speak to us through your words. Uh, Please speak to our minds and our hearts. Please soften our hearts to receive each and every word that you have for us today, God. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So we will start with chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, which I'll read again. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Firstly, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Now this has come up over and over again in Philippians, so we're just going to take a minute to talk about it. Paul says the words joy or rejoice 16 times in the 
little short letter of Philippians. And when you read God's words through Paul in his other letters, he basically cannot stop talking about joy and rejoicing. Here in this verse, Paul is rejoicing in what Jesus has done for us. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Earlier in the passage, if we, if we look back to a few weeks ago, he recited a hymn about the good news of Jesus. Jesus becoming a man, dying on the cross, taking upon himself the punishment that we all deserve. Paul is rejoicing about what our God is, who our God is and what our God has done for us. He is rejoicing that no matter what the circumstances are, God loves us and he is with us as well. In other places in Philippians, Paul is rejoicing about the Philippian church, the community that God has made them into, and the loving care that they have shown him through Epaphroditus. Paul is in prison during this, a prison system where basically nothing is provided for you. Often you only survive if your family and your friends come and bring you food and water. And so while he is there in this, this treacherous prison, Paul is both rejoicing in God and rejoicing about his fellow believers of Christ. If God's words hold any weight for us as a church at IPC, then we need to pay attention to these calls to joy. We need to strive to be joyful people. If Paul is this joyful in prison, then we need to check our own hearts as we go about our days. Every situation we're in, we need to ask ourselves, am I being joyful in God right now? When looking at scripture, it doesn't really seem that having joy in the Lord is an optional part of our lives. It seems like it's a necessity. Often in our culture, Christianity has the stereotype that we are a somber people. We're a subculture that's not really allowed to have fun. We have rules that prohibit us from enjoying the good things in life. But really, Paul is calling us to be a culture that is almost defined by its joy and its gladness in God. We should be rejoicing in God and be joyous over one another. We should be a culture known for its infectious gladness, its joy that's pouring out through our relationships with the Lord. This is the type of community that's, that's infectious, that others want to come and join in on. And we at IPC should be known as a community more joyous than the peoples around us and the clubs and the groups around us. Does this mean, though, that, that we should never feel sad or grieve or mourn? Definitely not. Paul in Romans says to mourn with those who mourn. But it does mean that we are to strive to keep Christ's perspectives and lenses. No matter what, it means we should do our best to look to God and to look to the goodness that he offers us in Jesus Christ and to have gladness in our hearts for him. No matter what the circumstances that we are going through, we should strive for that. It means that when we don't feel joy in the Lord, we can be honest and we can ask God to give us the joy that only he can provide to us. At times it can be unbelievably difficult to be joyous, but in God we are free to ask him for that joy that he can bring in the darkest times. When I look at Paul, I realize that my joy is very deficient. Paul rejoices more in God while he's in prison than I do in my daily privileged life. When I started preparing the sermon last week, I was honestly not rejoicing in God. It had been a crazy week, and we had the outreach week, and I was tired and kind of stressed. 
And rejoicing in God was one of the last things that was on my mind. And so when I opened my Bible and I read this, the very first sentence of this passage, it hit me like a train. God really cares about our joy. He wants us to have joy in him and to to have gladness in him. When we're living without joy, let's take that to God. Let's ask God to restore our joy in him. Now we'll continue on from here. I'll, I'll read the verses again. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. These things that Paul is writing again, and that is a safeguard for the Philippians, is the warning against those he calls dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. This warning will help to protect or safeguard the Philippian church from these people and their false teachings. These are pretty strong words that Paul uses. So who is he referring to? Who is he talking about? Most likely, Paul is talking about a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group that called themselves Christians, but really they were not. They were a group that Paul mentions in a couple of his other letters that he writes as well. And this group is adamant that for Gentiles, so non-Jews, to become Christians... They must basically become Jews first, and then they can become Christians. So they believe that they must physically, all the men must be physically circumcised, and that they must obey and adhere to all Old Testament laws and and purity rituals. Only then could they be Christians and join the church. Paul fought very hard against this teaching, because it really went against salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The gospel taught by the Judaizers was a a gospel of works. It was a false gospel. It was a gospel that said, for salvation, you need Jesus, and you need something else on top of Jesus. Jesus was not enough. You must also become a Jew. And so from what I understand, there were probably Judaizers in Philippi who were telling the church there these lies. They were telling the Philippian church that they needed to become Jews first before they could be Christians. In Paul's warning here, he does a little bit of of wordplay. Firstly, he uses the word dogs in a little bit of an ironic way against the Judaizers. Dogs was often a derogatory term used by Jews to insult the Gentiles or to insult the non-Jews. And so Paul turns that back on themselves, saying that, no, the Gentiles aren't the dogs. You Judaizers are being the dogs. He calls them evildoers. And then referencing their physical circumcision... He calls them mutilators of the flesh. And how it sounded to them in Greek, it it would have been like a pun, with the two words sounding really similar to each other. And so Paul is making very strong statements against the Judaizers. He is basically saying that their pride in being Jews is misguided. He is saying that this teaching is evil, that their physical circumcision is actually not important and that their reliance on righteousness through the law is a false reliance. And Paul follows this this sentence up uh, in verse 2 with kind of a a correction in verse 3. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, 
who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul juxtaposes themselves, the Christians, the Philippian church, with the Judaizers. And he does this in four different ways. Firstly, he compares circumcision. Part of the reason, as we talked about, the Judaizers saw themselves as saved is because they followed the law, and part of following the law was being physically circumcised. Circumcision was a way of bringing men into the community of the Jewish people. So being circumcised on the eighth day and being a Jewish man went hand in hand. But Paul says, it is we who are the circumcision. And Paul here is talking about a lot of Gentiles, a lot of, not, a lot of non-Jews, and the vast majority of them were probably not physically circumcised. And so Paul is claiming what he talks about in Romans as well, a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Being a part of the community of believers, being a Christian, is not something that's done by human hands and human works. Being physically circumcised does not bring one into the community of believers. But circumcision of the heart, the becoming and belonging to the people of God, is a spiritual thing. And this comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God brings us into his people. It's not something we can do with our actions. This is what I think Paul is saying. Secondly, Paul compares their serving. He says, for it is we who serve God by his spirit. So again, it's all God. Serving God is not something we can do on our own. Seeking the law on our own strength, like the Judaizers, will not lead us to God. But by God, through his spirit, we are able to serve God. True service to God is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, Paul talks about boasting in Jesus. And again, this is a direct comparison. The Judaizers clearly boasted in themselves, requiring the Gentiles to become like them to be saved. They saw themselves and their identity and their way of life as superior but no, Paul says we should boast in Jesus alone. Again, it is Jesus who saves, not us by our actions. And lastly here, Paul tops it off by saying, for it is we who put no confidence in the flesh. By confidence in the flesh, I believe Paul means basically anything besides Christ. Confidence in the flesh is trusting in anything else besides God. So this would mean confidence in yourself, your own abilities, your status or your birth status, your wealth, your friends, your spouse, the law. Confidence that these things can save or bring you salvation, bring you fulfillment in life. But these things cannot and will not save you. Again, unlike the Judaizers, as Christians, we believe only through Jesus Christ are we saved. No flesh, no actions, no accomplishments can save us. There's salvation through Jesus' grace alone. So really we see in these few sentences a, a really beautiful and full reliance that we have on Jesus Christ. We can't rely on our flesh or our circumcision or our own ability. We can't boast in ourselves. We can't even serve God properly without God himself, the Holy Spirit, helping us to do that. We rely solely on Jesus Christ for salvation, and we rely solely on God for his ability to glorify him. Honestly, this is one of the best news that is possible. This is so other to our world that's all about self-reliance, right? 
Our world is all about how much we can accomplish, how high you can score on your test, or how much money you can make for your company. The self-made woman or the self-made man is often the ideal in our world. But as Christians, we don't have to pretend like this. We don't have to pretend that we have everything together. We don't have to rely on our own strength. We don't have to try to be enough. Our God loves us, and he wants us to rely on his strength. We can ask him for desire and for strength to glorify him. Living for God should really be basking in his strength and goodness that he provides to us. We'll now continue on in the passage with verses 4 through 7, if you want to follow along. Paul says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul follows with these verses as a way to try and prevent anyone from boasting in their flesh, from thinking that they can save themselves. Most of what he says are things that the Judaizers may have been proud of. Circumcision, being a Jew descended from Jacob, a devoted and successful follower of the law, according to the Pharisees, persecuting the Christian church. Paul was before a role model for the Jews, and he was an, he was an all-star, really. And he would have been a role model to the Judaizers if, if he shared that similar belief with them. And so in a sense here, he's saying, if I'm disqualified from having confidence in my flesh, all of you are too. I think as Christians living here 2,000 years later or so, we have a pretty similar reaction to this. Most of us read the Bible and see Paul as one of the best possible examples that we can have. I remember our, our old pastor, Sam Yorfi, once told me, having Paul as our standard for living is totally unfair. And he was making a joke, but he had a point. Paul is so faithful, so devoted to God, so loving and motivated and, and joyous, if he doesn't put his confidence in the flesh, then we have no excuse to do that either. In a sense, it's kind of like if Michael Jordan said he put no confidence in his basketball skills, all other basketball players in the entire world, even the professional ones, would hesitate for a moment and would question if they should put their confidence in their skills. Or if Albert Einstein said he put no confidence in his intellect, most physicists and mathematicians may suddenly question their own values. When Paul says he puts no confidence in the flesh, this then begs us to be introspective and to ask ourselves if we do that. Do we look for salvation and fulfillment in our own abilities? Do we look to a friend or a boyfriend or a spouse? Do we look through money and material wealth? Do we rely on our own strength to try and serve God like the Judaizers and not rely on God's strength? I have a stark example uh, from my life of trying to serve God on my own strength and completely failing. I've told this story to some of you before, but by far the worst Bible study I have ever been to was one that I led. 
actually. In my second year of university, I started co-leading this Bible study uh, with a buddy. It was for first-year students at college. And the first few studies went pretty well. And honestly, this is kind of hilarious, but I grew arrogant about Bible studies. Um, I remember coming to this Bible study thinking, oh, I've got this. This is easy. Like, wow, I'm a great Bible study leader. I barely prepared anything, thinking I would do a great job of, of asking questions on the spot. And again, it was by far the worst Bible study I have ever been to. There was this terribly awkward, silent feel the whole time. The questions I asked were pretty obvious, and there wasn't much to say about them. And there was that, you know, quiet, polite energy there where everyone was kind of embarrassed for me, but everyone was nice so they wouldn't say anything. It felt horrible. And on the way home, uh, walking with my co-leader, he turned and said to me, Nate, to be honest with you, that was rough, man. That was rough. So God really humbled me that day and showed me so clearly that I need to put my confidence in him. I need to rely on him for, for desire and for strength and for his work to be done. I can't do it myself. As sinful people, we put our confidence in all sorts of things besides God. And these things can be both small things and big things. We can rely on ourselves and, and be prideful about small, silly things like that Bible study, right? We can also be tempted to put our confidence in other things that are huge, that may define our entire lives. We can put our hope for fulfillment in a spouse or money or a job. We can think salvation is through good works or our own ability. And both the little things and the large things that we do this in matter. All these things are temptations that will pull us away from God. All of these other things, whether it's small or whether it's big, are going to fail us. Through Christ alone is there salvation, and through Christ alone is there fulfillment. True joy, like Paul talks about, is to be had in Jesus alone. And with Jesus at the head of our lives, with our confidence fully in Jesus, all these other good things that God puts in our lives will be able to be properly enjoyed. God has given us so many good things, and these things are to be enjoyed, but only with Christ as the first and foremost thing that we have joy in. All right, we're moving towards the end, and we'll move to verses 7 through 9. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Everything Paul listed, all of his self-righteousness, every earthly thing that he had put his hope in, he considers loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. When he put his hope in these earthly things, they dragged him away from God. His confidence in the flesh did not lead him towards God. Further, Paul says he considers everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake he has lost all things. Christ and knowing him is infinitely more important than everything else. In comparison to Christ, everything else is a loss. Paul says he has lost all things for Christ. 
But this is really not a loss, as he says. This is a great gain. Matthew Henry paraphrases this in a, in a great way. He says, as if speaking for Paul, I should have reckoned myself an unspeakable loser if, to gain these things, I had lost Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, in, in typical fashion, takes this even further, saying, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And the word for garbage here is a very strong word. Uh, it's the word for dung or for poop. Actually, that's what, that's what he says. It says, compared to gaining Christ and being found in him, everything else in the world is dung. Everything else deserves to be thrown out of town or flushed down the toilet. Paul cannot emphasize enough how much more valuable and important knowing Christ is than everything else in life. Moving on, I'll read those verses again. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul sacrifices everything, counts everything as a loss, so that he can gain and be found in Christ, so that he can have a relationship with God and be a child of God. And putting our confidence in God is the opposite of putting our confidence in the flesh. As Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Like we've talked about, confidence in the flesh is death, and nothing else in life will, will fulfill us or bring us salvation. But as Christians, our righteousness comes from God through faith. As Christians, the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed or has been given to us. Jesus is perfect, and when he died on the cross, he took the wrath of God that we deserve upon him. And in having true faith in Christ, truly knowing and loving God, we have the righteousness of Christ given to us. We are justified, our sins are forgiven, and we're clean before God. We're no longer condemned. This is the only way to be saved, the only way to be clean. We can't work for our justification. No one else can give us justification. Nothing else can. Only Christ. He's our only hope. Now, coming to our last verses from Paul today, uh, we'll read verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's one goal, his one desire, is to know Jesus, to have a relationship with him, to know him deeply, and to live as Christ lived, even if that means suffering and dying for Christ in the end. And in knowing Christ and seeking him above all else, Paul knows that in the resurrection, when Christ returns, he will be in Jesus' presence forever. Paul's got his priorities straight. I think that's something we learned from this passage. His sole goal is to know Jesus and to live a life that comes out of this relationship. Everything else he used to live for, he has now realized is worthless compared to Christ. We'll now end today with, with a few uh, words from Jesus in the book of Matthew that, that Ingrid read earlier. Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? As we go this week, let's, let's meditate on these words of Jesus. Everything else is rubbish in comparison with knowing Jesus Christ. Living for ourselves and trying to find fulfillment in earthly things, it's going to lead us to death. In gaining the world, we will lose our lives, as Jesus says. But living for Christ and losing our lives for Christ, only there does true life lie. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Let's pray together. Jesus, please give us a correct perspective on life and on what is important, God. Please help us to take these extremely challenging words of yours um, and to, to live them out. Please help us to internalize them, God. Please, please speak to our hearts and pierce our hearts this morning and this week, God, and help us to yeah, just love you with all of our hearts every single day, God. In your name, Jesus. Amen.